0: A professor, journalist, and leader in sports and entertainment law, Professor Michael McCann shares his journey. This is Profiles, a special series of the podcast The Legal Impact, where you get to know the powerhouse people at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. UNH Franklin Pierce is now accepting applications for JD graduate programs and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. I'm assuming you were a human being before Deflategate, and I want to learn about that. Let's start off with your educational journey. Where did you go to undergrad and what did you study?
1: Yeah, the world before Deflategate. It was like, it was like a different era. So I, for high school, I went to St. John's Prep in Danvers, Massachusetts, then went to Georgetown University for college. And after college, I went to work for Tom Riley, who was a Middlesex County District Attorney in Massachusetts. He was running for attorney general. I was basically the utility player for Tom Riley. I did a number of different things, including driving him, including fundraising, including communications. Uh, Riley was notable because he was the district attorney in the Louise Woodward British Au Pair case where she shook a baby who died. So That, that case got a lot of attention in the late 1990s. And I worked with him. I got to know him very well went to work with him at the state attorney general's office and that was really an important experience because it sparked my interest in the law and then I went on to law school I went to the University of Virginia where I was the editor-in-chief of the sports and entertainment law journal and did some other things and then after UVA I went to practice in Boston and a couple years in there was a football player at Ohio State named Maurice Claret, who sued the NFL over its age eligibility rule. And my brother Bill said, hey, you wrote on that topic when you were in law school, you wrote a law review note on that topic on age eligibility rules. He said, why don't you email it to Claret's lawyer? And I said, well, why would he even look at it? I'm just some random whatever. And I emailed it to Alan Milstein. Alan Milstein, a super prominent sports attorney, has litigated for Allen Iverson, Eddie Curry, Carmelo Anthony, just a, a star in the sports law world. And I sent him a note. I said, you know, written on this topic, I uh, thought you might find this of interest. Well, he emailed me back and said he read it and he found it very interesting. And he invited me to join the legal team uh, for, for Claret. And that was my first experience in sports law
0: and I always talk about the ultimate the hands-on work you get in law school can pay off afterwards
1: that's right I, I as my wife will remind me frequently I was not some great athlete or really anything and I tell my students look I got into sports law by writing I wrote about a topic that was of interest to me I wrote about the NBA draft and age eligibility and the reason why I wrote about that is because I'm a big Boston Celtics fan and the way the draft works in the NBA is that when your team is bad, you get a high draft pick. The Celtics were really bad in the 1990s and, I, and, and then into the early 2000s. And I was watching the 2001 draft and Dick Vitale on ESPN was the announcer. He said something to the effect, it's a big mistake. These kids are skipping college for the NBA. And I thought, I don't think that that's correct. If you look at the data, if you look at the data, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Garnett, Tracy McGrady, the players that have skipped college actually did really well. And I, that was that sparked my interest in writing a paper on the topic. It was an antitrust paper. I wrote it for Donald Dell, who was the sports law professor, a very prominent person in sports as well. And so that was my entry point. And I always tell students, that's, that's how I got into it was by writing. So think about, use your time in law school wisely and think about writing projects they may not get you on a famous case but they might and that might be your only way onto a case like that
0: yeah this has been really interesting about this profile series so far is i mean I've got you're now the third person in this series, and each one basically is getting into the law from completely different angles. Like Mickey did it from the engineering, STEM, inventorship end of things and patents. Dean Carpenter got into it via just wanting to teach. And you got into it because your desire to write and your your interest in sports law.
1: Yeah, that's right. And... I was able to write into it and then I continued on. I, I went to Harvard for my LLM, which was a great opportunity because I took a year to really work on significant writing projects that I studied under a couple of professors there. One was John Hansen, who is just a phenomenal professor who does law and psychology and some economics issues as well related to that. He was my supervisor for a thesis, my LLM thesis. And I also worked under Paul Weiler, who's really the the I, you could say the founder of sports law. He taught the first sports law course. He wrote the sports law book. He was, without Paul Weiler, I don't know if sports law is a standalone discipline. So I got to study under two megastars, and they were both so generous with their time and they were both busy. You know, then it, it always strikes me when students come to me. I always remember the professors that were generous with their time to me, because I always want to do that with my students. Uh, and I think that that's the right—that's the most important part of being a professor—is working with students. And uh, the professors that worked with me and that were generous with their time is certainly something that I always value. And I did that. I w- went on and became a law professor. I went down to Jackson, Mississippi, where I taught at Mississippi College School of Law for a few years. And uh, I continued going back there every summer to teach a sports law class for until 2017, about, I don't know, another decade after I left. And uh, along the way, I was interviewed by Sports Illustrated for a story involving women basketball players uh, at Rutgers. Don Imus, this, the radio host, made derogatory statements about them. And I was interviewed about whether that was defamation and the interview went well. And then the editor BJ Schechter called me later and said, Hey, we need someone to, to write about sports law issues for SI. And at the time I had a blog with some other law professors on sports law. And I said, I said well, this sounds like a great opportunity. So I've been doing journalism for the last 14 years. Uh, in addition to teaching and law, and uh, it's been a fun mix. Obviously, teaching is my my primary love, but to be able to do journalism and practice as well has been a nice nice mix.
0: Now, what would a little teenage Mike McCann think of the career up to this point? We're not we haven't gotten further than this, but I mean teaching uh, being a being a lawyer, working for Sports Illustrated, which is one of the biggest uh, platforms in the world when it comes to sports journalism. I mean, Looking back, what do you think teenage you would have thought?
1: I think teenage me would have thought becoming a lawyer, there's a good chance of that being the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like doing moot court and I enjoyed sort of law really since high school. Uh, I have two older sisters, both of whom are lawyers, and it's always been something that has has been of interest to me. So I think that being a lawyer part and to be in sports law, Teenage became, would have been like, that sounds awesome. Right. <laughs> so, uh, the, the, the law professor and journalism part, I don't know. I mean, that, I don't know if that, that teenager would have thought that they would go on into academia or journalism. Uh, th- those sort of surface later. But I think becoming a lawyer was something that uh, was on my mind for a while.
0: One of the most important things I joked about at the beginning, Deflategate this is obviously one of the highlights of your time working with Sports Illustrated, including at the University of New Hampshire, where you taught undergrads a course specific to Deflategate. I mean, how do you feel like that controversy influenced your your journey?
1: Well, it was a huge story and it was a huge story because it was one that I could cover locally that had a national reach. And it was also a story It was interesting on a couple, at least three levels. One was the science of it. Is it true what the NFL claims about the Patriots and Tom Brady? I mean, it's literally, as I discovered, there were scientists who said it just doesn't make any sense what the NFL was saying. So there was the idea that how could the NFL put forward a theory of conduct that the basic rules of science say couldn't have happened. And, Why would that not end the story? It doesn't end the story because in law, that's not how the story ends. In law, I mean, this is a great way of teaching students that in law, just because you might have the facts on your side, doesn't mean you're going to win the case. So from that vantage point, I thought it was compelling and a great just sort of life experience to go through. The local part was great too. This is a story that everyone in my family was following because it's patriots, it's local. I grew up here, I mean, this is, there was sort of this sense of, this was the big story of the day, the fact that the country was following it. Also the fact that it was covered so differently nationally versus locally, where nationally, everyone assumes the Patriots, not everyone, but I think there was widespread suspicion that the Patriots were somehow guilty, that how are they good every year? They must be doing things. They did Spygate where they violated a league policy, but where they positioned cameras there's sort of this mystique to the Patriots and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady that fed into a narrative that led people to assume that they must, must have done it. Whereas locally, that wasn't the narrative. Locally, the narrative was, no, they didn't do it. They're great. So the conflict between the local and national, just to be a part of that was really a unique experience. And, and then the, just the, the the law part itself, that that part kind of, was almost subsumed by everything else. The law part was Brady was in a union. The union negotiated a collective bargaining agreement with the NFL. The collective bargaining agreement was really bad on issues of discipline, where even if a player could prove he's innocent, that doesn't mean he's not disciplined. I mean, think about that. It's kind of a sort of a striking finding. It's ultimately the commissioner's call. The commissioner doesn't have to admit evidence that, cuts against what he thinks is right. So the notion of when we teach students due process and equal protection, these big themes in law, the fact that they can be almost lost through a negotiation by a union and management, I I think is a profound point and, and should lead people to think about what that means in terms of their own employment, what that means in terms of those who represent them, so it was it was compelling on that lens as well.
0: Now, do you have any anecdotes from any of the students that went through that course and the impact it had on them to be able to see firsthand ongoing? At the time, it was still ongoing. I mean, they were still dealing with fallout from Deflategate. Uh, how did the students take it? And do you feel like it kind of uh, altered the career perspectives that some students had?
1: It did. A number of students from Deflategate went on to law school, including our law school. Uh, and a number of them have said, that that class gave them a reason to think about law as a career. And so on one hand, and they learned in that class, that obviously the class was called deflategate, but the entire class wasn't about deflategate. We talked about antitrust law, labor law, intellectual property law, torts, contracts. So they got a taste of everything in it. And it was a good survey course under the the masking of deflategate it was really a law course at the end of the day, and I think it for them it was, for some at least it was, gave them interest in law. I also think I remember the first class setting the tone, because the first class had five TV crews there. There were the three Boston stations, there was uh, Channel Nine, and then Fox Sports. Katie Nolan was there, and that there I remember we were scrambling. Kevin Sousa is is a person at UNH who I worked with on the course. He's an administrator who does phenomenal work. And we realized, like, the day before all these TV crews are coming, we have to get permission from the students. So, so we, <laughs> I mean, their first class are having to, you know, asked to sign an event form. Uh, yeah, so that that was kind of wild. The idea of just having TV crews following, having, filming the course the first time it's taught, the first class, it, it was surreal. I've never seen anything like it. I don't think I'll ever see anything like it again. And I think for the students in it, it was it was eye-opening.
0: Deflategate's a perfect transition to Sportico. I mean, it's intersecting law, sports, business, and how they all intersect. And you're one of the founding contributors to to this new media outlet. Can you talk about this transition from writing for Sports Illustrated to this new outlet?
1: Yeah, so I I was with Sports Illustrated for 13 years. I loved it, had no intention of going anywhere. But it was last April, Scott Soschnick, who's the top Bloomberg sports writer, reached out to me and said that he was putting a group together of people from Bloomberg, ESPN, Sports Illustrated, and some other uh, major outlets of starting a publication focused on sports business and the industry and it's powered by Penske media which is the publisher of Rolling Stone variety and other major brands so it's a it's part of a of a portfolio of, of publications that have a of a top publisher behind it and initially I said you know I, I really like where I'm at but the more I talked to Scott the more I got a sense that for the work that I do it was a it was a good, sort of transition point uh, of my career where writing about sports law fits into well fits well into sports business and sports technology and i thought you know sometimes in life you got to make a change and this was an opportunity to try something new and it's it continues to be compatible with my teaching my scholarly writing and and all the other things that i'm involved in so I loved it so far. It's a really, it's a great publication. And the writers are, are first rate, breaking a lot of news. Uh, Sportico broke the purchase of the XFL, uh, just a, all of these other sports business spacs, these new companies that are coming up uh, involving the sports industry. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's a great group. I but I still religiously read Sports Illustrated. It remains my favorite magazine by far. So uh, I like to think that I had a great run there. And I, I stay in touch with a lot of folks there, too. So it's been it's been a positive transition. But I also enjoy remaining part of the history of SI, too.
0: Because you weren't busy enough with everything else we mentioned so far, you also had time to write a book with uh, Ed O'Bannon, uh, who was a athlete. I mean, without going too deep into that case, I mean, can you talk about what that experience was like?
1: Yeah. So in that case, Ed O'Bannon, former NBA player, former UCLA star. After he retires, a buddy of his tells him that he's in a video game. He goes over, sees his his friend's son playing electronic arts basketball game with college players in it. Doesn't have his name, but has everything else: his race, his jersey number, his hometown, his skill set. He's the best player of the game. He was the player of the year in college. And that led to a case against the NCAA that went eight years and ultimately Ed won. And I covered that case for Sports Illustrated. It was out in Oakland, federal court. And while I was out there, I had dinner with him. And I remember I said, hey, when this thing's over, would you be willing to speak to UNH? Uh, Maybe make your first in-person visit after the case. And he said, sure. And he lived up to his word. So after the case ended years later, He came up to New Hampshire. He gave his first public comments to to a live audience here at UNH Law. And while he was here, we talked about, why don't we do a book on the case? I mean, beyond just the case, your life. Uh, And Ed's from Los Angeles, grew up there, a loving family. He had a devastating knee injury in college that changed his plans on when he would go to the NBA, Uh, recovering from that how he goes on and has a successful career, makes a lot of money. And then he decides, when he's in a really comfortable spot in life, he's retired, he's got three kids, his wife, they're living in a suburb of Vegas. He doesn't have to get involved, there's no reason. And it wasn't a case that would lead to him making money, it was about changing rules, but he took it on. And he took it on in spite of people saying, complaining, oh my God, you're getting rid of my video game, even though that's not what he was doing. So we so that was the case it was a great experience to write with someone who is so thoughtful, so caring, selfless, really to to kind of to give up years of your life for a case that is about changing rules that would that are going to benefit others it really speaks volumes about the person.
0: Yeah, I think we filmed some of those events, so I'll be sure to link them in the episode description if you want to check it out. Ed is he's fascinating. And to the last event we did, his wife even joined us, which was interesting to hear the the, the home field, what that was like for them dealing with, because it, it was a big case and it took what, seven years, eight years or something like that?
1: To go? Yeah, about eight years. And like you said, AJ, it was a big case for everyone in his family, right? They didn't, you know, they had to deal with the the attention the case got and And those who blamed Ed for the video game, that that he took their video game away. I mean, that was the prevailing critic that he that he did it for money when which is just factually wrong. Yeah, there's no money. It literally doesn't make sense. And the video game thing was also not sensible because the NCAA could have changed its rules. It still hasn't. To allow college players to license their name, image, and likeness for use in commercial products. It's all it takes. And these games, and EA is announced the game is coming back, although it's not going to have the NCAA. It's going to be college basketball or college football, excuse me. They shouldn't blame him. They should blame the NCAA. All
0: right, Mike. So what's the future for sports and entertainment law? Why should law students consider going into this field going forward?
1: Well, I think the immediate, short-term future is that a lot of colleges are going to need lawyers in their athletic department because there there are major changes coming to college athletes' relationships with schools. Where although it hasn't yet happened, it's on the precipice of happening, and there'll probably be litigation before then. But very basically, college athletes will be able to get compensated uh, for their name, image, and likeness, and maybe more, possibly. And for schools, they're not. A lot of them aren't really ready for that. What that means in terms of compliance. So, I think for law students, if they're looking to get into sports law right out of school, the college approach is definitely the way to go. At the same time, I always tell students, if you want to be a lawyer for the Lakers or the Dolphins or the Red Sox, it's it's not going to happen right out of law school. That these are teams that hire in-house counsel who have years of experience. But what you can do is seek externships and go to a school where you get the training for learning the craft in terms of antitrust, labor, employment, and increasingly intellectual property where our school is especially well-positioned as a a top five IP program. So I would say if if you're interested in sports law, it's a great field. It's not necessarily a field that you'll get into right out of school, but you can position yourself to get into it I would also add that our school has a unique advantage and we have a sports betting law program that is also fast moving. States are legalizing sports betting quickly. Anytime there's a lot of quick activity, that means legal issues are coming up. That's another field where we're seeing people get jobs.
0: Thanks for listening to Profiles, a special series of the Legal Impact Podcast presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple, Google, and Spotify.